Well, I know. Those are the unmistakable tones of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. This is the mistake-filled voice of Carson Stooley, host of Fangraphs Audio. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. In this edition of the podcast, I have a conversation with Mike Newman. If you're familiar with that name, Mike Newman, it's maybe because you recognize it from the website Scouting the Sally. Because you're a Fangraphs reader, it's also very possible that you've seen his name recently at our own site, where Mr. Newman has recently adopted the role of Prospect Maven. In what follows, Mike and I discuss the symbiotic relationship between scouting and stats. We talk about Mike's path to writing and scouting, including some time in college baseball and life generally in the American South. Finally, we talk about Mike's favorite players, past and present, from the South Atlantic League, a group one might regrettably refer to as Newman's Own. Join us for that and other terrible jokes on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. My guest today, as I hope I've told everyone, is uh, Mike Newman, uh, formerly, but, uh, but also currently, I believe, of uh, Scouting the Sally, and uh, definitely currently of uh, Fangraphs.com, where he plays the role of Prospect Maven. Mike Newman, you're, you're here, is that a fact? I am here. You're here. Uh, you're, I'm ex- <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to be here. I mean, you know, when I first started writing, I kind of looked at Fangraphs as one of those kind of big pie-in-the-sky gigs, and especially the fact that I was more into scouting. And, um, you know, there aren't there, there's not a war chart on a 20 to 80 scale. So I, I didn't know if something like Fangraphs would ever even be a possibility, but kind of the... You know, in talking to Dave Cameron a couple times, especially going back and forth on Twitter, you know, it, it turns out that sometimes numbers people and scouting people don't have nearly as much. Uh, well, they have quite a bit in common, and it's not so much opposite sides of the fence as, as we would like to think it is sometimes. Yeah, um, and, and it, so I should uh, I should tell our listeners a couple things. Um, first of all, uh, I happen to be recording this. I'm, I'm uh, out in New England visiting my mother currently. Uh, so if there are any shrieks in the background, it's either my mother or aunt cheering because the Red Sox are playing currently. Oh, nice. Where in New England are you? Uh, I'm up uh, in the sort of uh, down, what's called Down East, Maine, uh, north of Belfast, Maine. Oh, very nice. I, we used to go to Maine when I was a kid for my father's Hokey Bluegrass Festivals. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I, I lived in the Northeast for quite a while. And uh, basically my first 18 years were all in the Northeast, and since then I've been in the South. Yes, which is basically the same, except totally different. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, well, the second thing I should say is that I know um, from your, I, I know just sort of from our internal mail service that we have, that you were, and also from a couple tweets, I think, that um, you you fired across the Internet. Uh, you were maybe a little bit apprehensive Approaching, you know, both, you know, when you sort of found out that you were going to write for Fangraphs, and and then uh, additionally your your first post or two, and I was, I mean, beyond what you just sort of, you know, mentioned there, the sort of potential, if if probably usually imagined, antagonism between what we might call responsible, um, you know, stats stats people and more scouting oriented people. I was wondering if there was any sort of uh, you know, if your apprehension was based on anything besides that or beyond that? 
No, not really. You know, I think one of the misconceptions is is that, you know, scouting people and people that scout baseball games are these, no offense to the 60-something-year-old men who are old-school scouts that don't even show up with scorebooks anymore and, you know, just watch a guy and can tell from the pop of, pop of a mid or a crack of the bat, you know, velocities and times and things like that. I, I find that remarkable. But, you know, a lot of the scouting contexts that I talk to are much younger that found me through scouting the Sally and have a scouting base that also has quite a bit to do with numbers. And coming over to fan graphs, you know, in my writing, I'll dabble with war and some of those basic metrics. But then I thought to myself, well, if I really wanted to write something that was a little bit deeper, like the, the piece I did last week, I think was a little bit deeper than I'm used to writing, uh, talking about power tools and Oh, right. Uh, this was uh, sort of predicting the power tool or looking at, you know, trying to yeah, anticipate the power yeah. tool at the major yeah, level. So, yeah, but looking at the metrics, you know, I, I worried that, you know, you start writing about something that's outside of your sweet spot, which I, I think in some ways the Fangraphs audience is smart enough to expect uh, that in writing out of your sweet spot, you are learning at the time you're writing, and sometimes that opens you up to... Um, people picking apart everything you you write but at the end of the day when it is picked apart sometimes it leads to a different line of thinking and actually being well becoming better at what you do or uh, smarter at it you know yeah that's actually an interesting point kind of uh, what you're mentioning like they're starting writing and 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 by writing you know looking at um, ideas that are kind of just on the edge of your comfort level because um, I guess if you stay if you stay too far within it, then you're then you're not really learning. But it's those parts where you're kind of like just in the outer edges of where where you feel real comfortable, where you as the as the author are are learning kind of at the same time that you're writing about it. And I, I mean that could be exciting. Obviously, you know you have to handle it responsibly and you have to let your your audience know, I guess. But but um, that's also probably going to create some of the most exciting writing. Yeah, I mean. You know, my audience at Scouting the Sally was a small but rabid scouting audience, where now it's almost the opposite. It's a larger numbers-based audience. And you just think about it and you go, well, how is this going to be received by a different crowd that maybe doesn't have a complete understanding of scouting? But then again, you know, I might not have as complete – well, I know I don't have as complete a – a knowledge of metrics than a lot of the writers on fan graphs. So it just, you know, I knew it was going to be different when I started writing and you just never know. Sometimes people don't like different. And, um, you know, one of the things I've been really thrilled about is just how well I've been received by, by the fan graphs crowd as something that is, I think a little bit new and not the norm of what they're used to reading. Yeah, no, no, I think, I think it's worked well. It actually, uh, you you and uh, you've uh, you've met the challenge so far, but uh, we've also had we definitely had some cool uh, prospect writers generally. Um, I mean, Mark Hewlett is still around, and um, we've had you know we had a, a brief stint from Frankie Pellieri, who's a smart guy, and uh, Brian Smith in particular, um, who doesn't write for us anymore, wrote some really sharp articles and, and kind of having fun with that that area where where pro, you know prospect mavenry and statistically. Um, intersect and that that can be a fun and also sort of a scary place but so um 
and I, and I will I will uh, fully endorse your your power tool article from um, from this past week, which looks at uh, which you know sort of looks at especially the the sort of the effect that strikeout rates can have. You you looked at Cody Johnson in particular, who was a uh, who was a uh, I guess he was a Braves prospect, and now he's a Yankee. Yeah, he he was a Braves and Yankees guy, and he was a former first round pick. And you know on that team he played for in Rome. There were two guys by the name of Jason Hayward and Freddie Freeman, and the Fangraphs audience might have heard of them a little bit yeah, over the last right. co- you know year or two. And Cody Johnson by far had the most in-game power of either guy. So if you're just watching batting practice, which I know scouts that do just simply power tool grade off of BP, and if you see that, you go, okay, this Cody Johnson guy's an easy 80 power. Mm-hmm. But then again, when you actually look at the scouting scale. You know, it is also viewed as, you know, an 80 power means that a guy's going to hit 38 or more home runs at the big league level. Well, when a guy projects to strike out, I mean, if Cody Johnson were in the major leagues today, he would probably strike out 60% of the time. That's, and, that's so many times. Because, I mean, considering, uh, and to put that into to, to context, I guess, like the upper bound is usually about. Like somewhere in the thirty to thirty-five range, probably. Yeah, and he struck out forty-three percent of the time in Double A. So (laughs) if you were to, yeah, I mean, if you were to project that, and not to not to bash on Cody Johnson or anything, but you know, you look at that and you go, well, was it irresponsible of me to want to tag him with an eighty grade because the next year I was able to see Mike Stanton in Double A. And as far as raw power, Cody Johnson and Mike Stanton are one and two. Um, and you look at that and you go, well, I can tag Mike Stanton an 80, but you can also project that he's going to hit the ball enough to warrant 80 power. And you can't do that with Cody Johnson. So to grade both an 80 on power, uh, to me, I, I, I kind of find myself in looking back at myself and and some of the the writing that I've done is is it's was almost irresponsible. And had I known as much about the numbers and what makes, mm-hmm. uh, I guess the 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 I don't know if mechanics is the right word, but the the metrics and the statistics behind a player being able to hit 38 home runs at the big league level, I probably never would have you know, said the power is that great in the first place. Right. Well, I, guess, I mean, I guess the real question is, and, you know, maybe there's less disagreement than I would assume. The question is, is it, A, how many home runs he's going to hit at the major league level, or, and, and this is probably, especially, you know, the the further down you go in the amateur ranks, is it a question just of how much power he has on contact? Which is, it sounds like that was when you were looking at Cody Johnson, like, uh, you were really looking at power on contact, and not necessarily looking at it in the context of, you know, you know, uh, a ma- necessarily a major, uh, a major league home run total. Yeah, and and in truth, um, that power tool is based on if the guy were in the major leagues tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How many home runs would the guy hit? I mean, you have the present power, and then you have that future power, and that's why in the minor leagues you get like a fifty-five slash sixty grade or something like that. So even if, I've, if I could have graded at the time the future power of Cody Johnson in 80 or 70 or, or 75 or something like that, to me, I, I feel like in order to put that tag on somebody, because anytime you have a 70 grade, that is really the elite of the elite, um, 
to me, somebody would, could just say, prove it. And could you prove it? And, and to me, I, I guess coming from an education background and, um, you know, where education is steeped in data. And for those who don't know, my day job is in education. So, um, it's steeped in data. It's steeped in, if you want to do this, then prove it. And to me, I just found no way to prove it. So that's more or less what the article was about. That should a scout who drops that grade on people, if he gets a call the next day from the scouting director and goes, look, you put an 80 on this guy. My other scouts put a 50 on this guy. Prove it. Right. How does that look if then that guy has no response? Right, right. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Now, I want to, uh, at some point in here, uh, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to get to some specific um, players and, and also just uh, to sort of generally the, the project that is Scouting the Sally and how that came around. Um, I, I kind of want to set it up, I guess, to see how you got there. Um, and, uh, you know, you can go as far back as, as you find, as you think is compelling. Um, but really, I, I'm curious as to how did you get to a point where you felt comfortable not only, um, you know, scouting players, but then also, you know, sharing those thoughts in a way where you had the audacity to think that your opinion mattered. <laughs> well, you know, each day I still struggle, and, and, and I'm kind of shocked that in many ways, you know, my opinion on guys does matter. I mean, you know, that first Fangraphs live chat where over the course of a couple of hours there were almost 300 questions and 1,300 people, it was just absolutely mind-blowing. And, was that fun, uh, I, was that so, fun or stressful or what? i got to tell you, it was one of the most stressful two hours in my life and not, not answering the questions because answering the questions are, are great. And I really, I genuinely enjoy doing it. And I, I really, in a lot of ways, don't think there's any better test of what somebody knows than throw them into a two hour chat session because you don't have your stats next to you. You don't have all these things next to you. It's almost like, okay, here we go. You don't know what question's going to be next. I mean, when we do a podcast, we can talk about who we're going to cover and everything and prep but that live chat there really is no prep you're there and you're just steeped in it but you know getting back to the the other part of the question you know i played baseball through college and played with a number of former pros and probably the the best name of the bunch being scott downs with the angels now and where was where was college well, I went to the University of Kentucky, wound up finishing up at a Division II school down in Florida by the name of Barry University, um, and, and that was a pretty strong division. I mean, at the time I was there, uh, we played against Lance Negro, who, you know, had a cup of coffee before turning into a knuckleball pitcher like his pops and um, some other guys, and, you know, I finished college and went right into coaching, and I wound up joining the high school coaching staff of a coach that later on after I was long gone, went on and won a national championship. So I wound up being really fortunate to play a lot of good baseball growing up and, and be tutored and, and mentored by very bright baseball people. And I also was a pretty voracious baseball reader in terms of how to, um, how to become a better baseball player. Like when I was in college, I remember my, my Bible that I brought on road trips was Keith Hernandez's baseball book back from the 1980s where he broke down every pitch of two games and it was like 300 pages based off two games um, do, do, you is, remember the, do you remember the name of this text? Oh gosh, I could look it up real fast um, you know, so, but, If you do, this will not be the first instance of googling 
uh, on the podcast. It was called Pure Baseball. I can't believe it. I didn't remember that. But it's Pure Baseball by Keith Hernandez. And uh, growing up, it was like my father used to always tell me growing up in New York that it's that strawberry guy, that Doc Gooden guy, I'll flash. Watch Keith Hernandez. Watch where he sets up on the field. Watch how he fields bunts and handles at bats and stuff like that. I mean, my father really taught me to be a student of the game because – I wasn't that big and I wasn't that fast and I didn't have any real good tools. So I, I just had to be smarter. And, uh, I, I took that really seriously, you know, through my baseball career and then into coaching. Um, and then I just kind of woke up one morning and was tired of it and needed some time away. And that's when I started my career in education and met my wife and started a family and things like that. And, you know, I found myself in Savannah playing some. Fantasy baseball at the time and getting into my first dynasty leagues and things like that. And, um, one of my buddies just kept pushing me, you know, write, write about it. Just write what you think. Start a little site for 10 bucks and write what you think and see if anybody cares. And, um, one weekend I remember sitting down and my whole family was out of town and remembered, I think, posting 15 pieces that weekend. Oh, and it was, wow. it now, was awful. Now, is this, uh, the sort of, is this actually scouting the salary, or is this a sort no? Of no, it was actually another site called, and I'm even embarrassed to say the name. It was so bad. It was called Baseball Handyman because I thought I could talk about a lot of different things in little bits, just like a handyman does, uh, fixing lots of stuff around the house. And right, right. Uh, the pieces were awful. And and I was around the corner from a baseball stadium, and I wasn't really watching baseball. I was um, reading uh, as much baseball as I could, and kind of putting that into together into I don't know maybe half unique ideas based on everything else that I was reading and it was regurgitation at, at the end of it and it got to the point where it really didn't make me that happy to do it and I wound up having a chance to see Jason Hayward and Freddie Freeman and Jesus Montero in the same week and, and now are those the uh, baseball handyman days still? Yeah, that was still the baseball handyman days. I was actually writing uh, a piece or two a week for a uh, now defunct site called Mets Geek and uh, the Savannah Sandnets were the Mets affiliate at the time. So I'd go over to the stadium and watch some Mets guys, but they didn't have anybody. Um, so I wound up watching Hayward and Freeman and Jesus Montero and Austin Romine and those guys. And um, I came home and I just, Kind of, I went to the ballpark with a notepad, and my wife laughed at me the entire time as I sit there with my notepad, taking it really seriously and writing notes. I must have looked like the biggest geek in the world. And uh, I came home and I wrote those up as scouting reports, and they received some pretty good feedback from like the eight people that read them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, the next year I, I came back and. For a couple months, it was baseball handyman, but now the only thing that I was doing was scouting and watching players, and I had my cheap little digital camera and was going to games, taking pictures and uh, taking notes about guys and sneaking readings from scouts. And, um, you know, a few months of that, I said, well, I really need to drop this other thing that I'm doing and just focus on the scouting, and that's when uh, scouting the Sally came to pass and I think the first time that people started actually noticing Scouting the Sally was when I actually started going to baseball games and tweeting uh, velocities and information and things like that and that was when the first real buzz started generating about the site yeah you know and it's such a simple idea uh, just to just to do that but obviously um, if you're if you're reporting if you're tweeting on 
uh, player, um, you know, a minor leaguer in in a fan's, uh, you know, system, and, you know, the system that he cheers for, obviously you're going to immediately have an audience right there. Um, it's it's almost it's almost strange that you know I mean you know not to say it's easy but it's but it you know sometimes those sort of like simple uh, ideas um, those you know those are the best ones and uh, I, I mean did, did did you find that a lot of other people were doing a similar thing at the at the time? No, not at all, and I think that's what made it a bit unique. I mean, there are a million sites out there where people read all the scouting reports that they can find by the Goldsteins and the Laws and sometimes myself and put that together into their own nifty little package and present that to their audience. But, um, you know, I've found that there really aren't that many people actually going and scouting baseball games because, in all honesty, there's an inherent cost to it. I mean, I can... My average drive time now is probably 120 miles round trip to go see a ball game. And over the summer, gas is 350, 360 a gallon. So if I go to a ball game, it's costing me $50 to go ahead and scout that game. And it's much easier to hang out in your own air conditioned home and have a couple beers and read what a bunch of other people are saying and write it. So I don't think there are that many people doing it because of the cost of it. And, um, I just don't think there are a lot of people that feel confident enough to go out to baseball games and put together in a strong way what they actually see. Right. And, well, well, I'm interested in that. You know, is is where what do you feel like uh, for yourself as Italian evaluator? I mean, how do you draw the line between you know making um, you know making strong statements about a prospect, but then also um, being careful to you know to to make clear your limitations of your understanding of, of said prospect? Well, you know, I, I think it's difficult, and I think part of it is explaining just the fact, and it's something that I've, I've come with since the beginning of Scouting the Sally, that I only present myself as a single source. Um, you know, if a scout or if a scouting director goes ahead and opens up their computer and takes a look at these scouting reports on, let's say, a Randall Delgado who pitched tonight, they may get singular reports from five or six or seven different people. I've never really wanted to be the guy that somebody took as the Bible of scouting. That's never really been my interest. My interest has just been one of those sources. Use me as one of those sources, just like you would use somebody else. And maybe even don't give me, because I don't have as big an audience as much cred as a Goldstein or a Law or something like that, but um, just know that at the end of the day, these guys that I talk about, I see in person. And even though um, you may not appreciate the fact that I only get one look at a guy, that's still in my mind more to go off of than no looks. Right. So I and, guess the idea is like, as long as the reader is clear of the parameters, you know, or the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the circumstances under which you've written uh, your your post or, you know, your your assessment of a player, then there should be no confusion. I hope not. I mean, there's always going to be confusion, and most of that confusion comes from Yankees fans, <laughs> because if I don't 
completely love on any one of their guys that they put out. They tend to bash me and send death threats and things like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's so difficult because everybody that reads about prospects really wants what they want out of that prospect. Every Dodgers prospect wants me to go crazy about every C plus prospect in the organization. And, and that goes for every other organization that has guys that I scout. And, um, you know, you're never going to make everybody happy. The only thing that I could do is try and be as truthful as humanly possible. And, you know, there's just some things I don't do. I don't talk to players at games. Um, I don't try and become their friends. I don't, you know, there are a lot of things and, and a lot of quality control that I've kind of built in to what I do to try and remain more or less anonymous when I go to games and simply watch the games and scout what I think and, and feel and um, see. Mike, can I just ask you a question? Can you hear my mom shouting in the background? I can't. You can? No, no, oh, I you, cannot. You cannot, all right. Uh, well, well, we'll see nope. uh, uh, later on. She's just yelling in the background. No idea what's going on. Yeah, really rude. Really rude. But, uh, uh, that's what happens when you visit your parents as an adult. That's just how it is. Uh, yeah, that's why we try not to do it very often. No kidding. No kidding. Um, <laughs> the, I just heard her. Yeah, you heard her. Yeah, yeah, that was her more directly ruining the podcast. Then. Um, here's a question. Here's a question. Um, one thing that that uh, you've done that I, that I think is pretty cool, and in, in which I'm assuming at some level is representative of the of uh, scouting the Sally, is uh, you directed my attention to a post you you did um, called "Scouting the Sally Top 25 Baseball Players Scouted." Uh, this in, in particular was your August edition. Um, you, you could obviously explain it more clearly than I am, or your sort of intentions behind the project. For me, though, what the cool thing about it is. Is not just as a report on prospects, but sort of, it's it's also like really a comment on on your writing project as well, because it's because it's like the experience of this one guy. So it almost has you know like this, uh, um, it's it's almost like this, this sort of like baseballer's diary at the same time, you know, because it's like because it's very intimate, because these it's like guys that you have seen and guys yeah. that you haven't seen don't appear on this list. So it you know it's not like a top. A top twenty list or whatever in the in the you know the sense that we're used to. So I was wondering if you just talk about that and and you know talk about uh, maybe a little bit like compiling a list of players you've seen with the knowledge that there are players you haven't seen who are just not going to make an appearance in your list. Yeah, you know I think at this point I've probably seen if you take a look at the preseason top one hundreds I think I've probably seen sixty to seventy guys that are in those top one hundreds so. Fortunately, I'm in a position where I've gotten the opportunity to see well more than half. But, you know, Scouting the Sally and the site has always been about what I see, not what I read. And, I, and I've always focused on that being something that separates the site from from other sites that are out there. Um, and this top 25 list, it's basically... You know, I take all the guys that I've seen in the life of the site, all the guys that I've scouted, written about, um, have video on that maybe I haven't written about yet, and I basically lay them out like somebody used to do, I don't know, baseball cards when 
back in the 80s or whatever, and you, you used to have your little drafts with your friends, I just basically once a month go in and have a draft based on every guy that I've seen. So this month, who would I rather have? Well, for the first couple of years, Jason Hayward was number one. But I think at this point, he's played himself out of that top spot, and Mike Stanton's probably the best player I've ever seen. So, um, you know, I, I try and just keep that running list, and it changes and it grows and, and every single month based on my memories of scouting them and, and how they've developed and the stats, obviously, and, and my perception of them at this point in their career. So it, it's been a really interesting thing for me, and and one of those things that if somebody comes to the site or goes, who the hell is this Mike Newman guy and why should I read anything that he says, they could look at that top 25 and go, holy cow, this guy's seen a lot of baseball up close and personal. And every guy that you see, whether it's a guy that I didn't like that turned out really good like Freddie Freeman or a guy that I loved that maybe uh, turned out great or a guy I loved that didn't turn out good at all it's all a learning process and and growing and and one thing about good scouts that i've spoken to is that they are never ever done learning there's never a point where you know so much about baseball that there's no way to get better yeah um i just as an as an addendum to this particular point i I was sort of thinking what it reminded me of um especially this top 25 list and it's uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, or read the book High Fidelity. Um, it, there's a mm-hmm. scene where um, he's I think he's uh, just broken up or something like this, and and uh, John Cusack is arranging rearranging his records based on in, entirely personal um, his his entirely personal relationships with the music or the mm-hmm. records. Yeah, and it's and and, and I, I get that feeling a little bit from these lists because it's like because it's like you've seen these guys and it's like you know. They're players that, you know, at some level belong to every fan, but at the same time, you've you've had these like experiences where it's like I'm sure you can remember when you saw Mike Stanton and what you were thinking at the time, and same for you know Jason Hayward and Bryce Harper. I wonder, do you have any particularly strong memories about the guys that you know have either passed through or are still still in the Sally League? Like uh, just kind of uh, recollections from the time you saw them, and you, maybe you were like you know, really wrong or really right. <laughs> you know, there are a few. Um... You know, thinking about Mike Stanton, I remember entering the 2010 season, and at the time, people were, and mostly the metrics crowd, were like, this guy strikes out too much, he's going to stink, he's not going to be able to hit enough, and everybody was bashing him, and people would ask me, because I'd, I'd seen him at the end of the season before, what do you think? And I said, I just think you have to see him. He's a guy that defies the metrics, the numbers, he's just so special in so many ways. And I remember going to Jacksonville to scout Stanton. And, you know, sometimes you see a guy hit a moonshot that goes 500 feet and you go, okay, I can look at that guy and see 80 power. For me, it was the mistakes that Stanton made that made me see 80 power. In that game, I think he went two for five, but the three times he got out, he basically fisted fly balls to the right center field warning track. And they were total mishit infield pop-ups for anybody else. And for him, they still sounded like thunder coming off his bat. Yeah, and actually, and I said to myself, <laughs> yeah. "Wow, yeah, wow." And, and the other thing about Stanton that you notice, and uh, once again, the Metro's crowds—you know, the whole 
grinder mentality or makeup being such a word that nobody seems to ever be able to prove or whatever. You know, it was a rain delay. And I remember there was only one player out of the dugout signing autographs and meeting all the kids. And that was Mike Stan. And walking around that stadium, talking to people, everybody glowed at what a class act Mike Stan was. And for me, when you combine that kind of natural ability, plus the fact that he just seemed like a really great, hardworking kid, you, you go back and you go, wow, this kid is really, really special. And, and you know, he, he's proven to be just that. Um, and we do, and I will, I'm happy to announce that we have uh, the appearance of uh, uh, Chip Carey. Chip Carey's Chip favorite verb, I believe, uh, fisted, you used. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, yeah. that, that's happened on the podcast now. Uh, very nice. Yeah, uh, very I good. didn't. I didn't know. Um, now, now let's. Uh, I, I'm totally speechless. So we might as well just end this podcast. Oh, that out. makes you different than Chip Carey, then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, uh, uh, here's the thing. Um, and I'm promising everyone we will get to specific players. Uh, but here's here's the thing that I'm uh, curious about. I th- I think that the uh, you know the more curious of our listeners will be is. Uh, about the Sally League in general, or I guess it's technically the South Atlantic League. Um, could you could you talk about the significance of that league? You know, I mean, maybe what makes it special or what makes it totally unspecial. You know, for me, in starting the site, just knowing about the talent that had passed through previously. I mean, this is when Hanley Ramirez was. Um, well, he was twenty three, twenty four at the time. It's not like he's an old guy now, but I, I know he had a poor season, but. You know, he was just turning into a superstar and, um, the league over the years has been a who's who of superstar caliber players that have passed through. And for whatever reason, it seems like the Southern League and the South Atlantic League and maybe it's the way that organizations set their um, organizational depth tar- charts and how they're going to promote players. Uh, for example, the Red Sox have no problem sending their college first rounders to Greenville, which is in the South Atlantic League. So Renato was here at the beginning of the year. Workman spent the year here. Brent spent the year here. And you know, next year they may come back and you might see Matt Barnes here. So for whatever, maybe it's a little bit of the way the teams promote. Um, maybe it's a little bit of the, the talent that these teams sign. I mean, whenever you have a league with the Mets, the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Braves in it, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to have some good pitching. You're going to have some overslot signing bonuses. Um, this league has just been the creme de la creme of young prospects for a long time. I mean, even if you look at this season... You know, if you look at that 2010 draft in the first round picks, Harper here, Tyon here, um, Machado here, Profar, international guy who projects to be a superstar, Sanchez projects to be uh, a really good player with the Yankees. So there's so many first round draft picks here, so many high money international signing bonus. This league just remains chock full of immense talent year after year after year where I don't see that same level of talent around other leagues, or maybe I'm just not paying enough attention because I'm so South Atlantic League centric. But 
uh, it's you know whenever one league can produce 40 or 50 of the top 100 at some point in their development i'd say that's pretty darn good now in terms of specific players it seems like one we're contractually obligated to talk about um, if none other is is xander xander bogarts Am I, am I saying that correctly? Am I saying that correctly? Yes, it is. It is Xander Bogarts. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think we're 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 required to talk about him. Uh, he's a shortstop, uh, and you'll tell us if he's for now. Right, and then uh, and your note uh, uh, from August on him was that uh, only two players have posted a higher ISO than him as an 18-year-old in the Sally uh, since '95, at least. That's Mike San and Adrian Beltre. AKA players with excellent major league power. Yes. So, so what's the? Uh, and this is probably something I don't know. I, and actually, it'd be another interesting question. I'll ask you in a second. But what's the current? Uh, what's the current status report on Xander Bogarts and your, your outlook for him and what you see from him right now? I mean, for we me, should, sorry, we should say that he's a shortstop prospect for the Boston Red Sox. Right. Yes, and for me, he's hands down the most electric player in that system right now. Uh, if you had to peg one guy to potentially be a superstar, it would be him above all else in that organization. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that it, it would be great for the metrics crowd to have an understanding is that the scouting means infinitely more at the lower levels than the stats. And then the numbers come more into focus as a player moves up. So, in, in this case, Bogarts just scouts off the charts. Um, you know, in game action, I saw him take a full count hanging slider, 430, 440 feet to straightaway center field. And you're thinking about that kind of power from an 18-year-old. And then he just went on to do it over and over and over again. I mean... Most players don't show power at 18 years old. That's more or less the last tool to develop. I mean, um, Miguel Cabrera, Hanley Ramirez, some of these guys that you hear Bogart's comparisons to had one-third of the home runs at the same level. So you're looking at that kind of already developed power, and you go, holy cow, what can this guy be in his prime? Now, there's still that high risk, high reward aspect of him, but you know, he's such a natural talent. He's a guy with a high baseball IQ already, being from uh I think it's Aruba, where obviously Aruba's not a baseball hotbed per se. So he already has an advanced baseball IQ and feel for the game along with that elite power profile and I just can't help but think the sky's the limit for him um, as he continues to move through the system. And for a while, he'll stick at shortstop. He might wind up over at third base when all's said and done, but the power projects to play over there too. So uh, I don't really think there are any real red flags for him right now. I know people have talked about just him not facing real breaking balls yet and um struggling with that but you know they said the exact same thing about Mike Stanton look how that turned out uh, to me elite talent and um, the combination of elite talent and high makeup hard work um, tend to play out very very well as prospects develop yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you answer this question even though uh, it, we won't make you uh, liable uh, for your uh, 
for how how exactly wrong you're going to be. But uh, if you had to say a peak war at this stage, like you know, in his age 27, a peak what? A peak war, peak wins above replacement. Yeah. Um, goodness gracious. I, I mean, the fact that I think he can become one of the better players in baseball, and the fact that I already think he's um, right now he profiles as a guy that when he slides over to third should be an above average third baseman. In his peak, could I see a look? If Ben Zobrist and Alex Gordon can hit six WAR, I don't see why somebody like Xander Bogarts couldn't either. Uh, I, I really think he's a special talent um, in that sense. And if somebody said, "Is he going to comp favorably to a guy like Adrian Beltre?" I would say, "Sure." And um, and to me, maybe that power or uh, whatnot is a little more consistent through his prime and closer to uh, Beltre's best seasons instead of the good but not great play that he seems to have most of the time, if you know what I mean. Right, or the or just Safeco Safeco era Adrian Beltre, who had to deal yes, with yes, it. better numbers than Safeco era Adrian Beltre, right. but. <laughs> You know, Adrian Beltre, I mean, he's been a hell of a player throughout his career, and I think 15, 20 years from now, we may look back and see him as an extremely underrated guy during, you know, his time in the big leagues. Right, right. Now, you know, there there are a lot of other names of, of guys that you've looked at, and I'm just curious, as, you know, I'm just going to ask you to, to pick a couple, if you would, really, you know, to, that, that are sort of most exciting for you at this moment. Maybe guys that, you know, haven't been, uh, you know, they haven't had as much electronic ink spilled about them, but maybe you sort of consider them your guys. Yeah, you know, in back in 2009, it, it was a thin year as far as offensive prospects in the South Atlantic League. And I remember probably the biggest mistake I've ever made in, in scouting. I wrote about it last week. And every time I see Mike uh, Matt Moore take the mound, I want to, you know, commit Harry Carey. <laughs> but... Yeah, well, I, I guess I used another carry in my uh, podcast. Yeah, but I know this is getting uh, <laughs> this. This has to be a record. Yeah, but you know, I I chose to see at the time, which was the right decision, a doubleheader of Tim Beckham in between Matt Moore and Jordan Lyles. Right now, that doesn't look like the smartest decision I've ever made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in in going to see Tim Beckham back in 2009, I was disappointed in what I saw, and I think since then that story has played out. But later in the year, I had a chance to see Travis D'Arnaud, who's now with the Toronto Blue Jays, and he blew me away. He blew me away to the point where I ran home that night, looked on my Keeper League waiver wire, and signed him to my minors and tried to get him in every league I was in and said, boy, this guy's legit. This guy's the real deal. He's going to hit. He's going to catch. He's going to hit with power. He's going to be a very, very good ball player. And um, I wrote him up pretty quickly and said, this is a, a 270, 285 hitter with 18 to 25 home runs in his prime. You're looking at an all-star level catcher right now. Now, and, so well, with that, uh, because obviously, so this year we should say uh, uh, Darno played at Double uh, A. Yep. Um, had a good season there, but 
but uh, J.P. Aaron Sibia also had a pretty decent season at the major league level. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I think you're looking at well, it, it, it's going to make for a good story. Um, but you know, you still look at a guy like Aaron Sibia, and I mean, I'm looking at him right now, and. 278 on base percentage and negative fielding numbers and 1.5 wins above replacement. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good big league catcher, but I don't think it's anything like a guy like, I don't think he's a guy that's going to hold DRNO back. Okay. So you, so you uh, see Aaron Sibia as, as a, a solid major leaguer, but with some, and uh, maybe some conspicuous flaws. You see, Diarno as as a as a you know potential star. Then I see Diarno as a potential All Star first division catcher in, in the American League East. And um, you know, I, I saw it back then, and I remember being very positive about him in, in write ups and, and things like that. And I called him the best position prospect in the South Atlantic League back in two thousand nine. And I'm glad that that seems to have you know, born fruit after such a tough 2010, which was set back with injuries and, and things like that. So I'm hoping that he becomes a heck of a pro. And he's always been a guy that I've wrote fondly about that. I've been uh, excited to catch up on his progress and no pun intended, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, uh, you catch all these, don't you? Uh, oh man, double pun. Boom. <laughs> well, you know, it's. I think you hit on it earlier, and and I've described this site as more or less my adult baseball card collection. Yeah. And and that's pretty much what the site is. So I, I'm glad that Darnotis stock is up in terms of of you know what he's done because a, a guy like that adds credibility to to a site and the things that I do, and that's always a good thing. Now, can I can I ask you? You said you you talking about your own excitement. Um, one one thing that it's sort of a, a little idea I have in the in the back of my head that um, I'm unlikely to do anything with, but I like to bring it out every now and then. Uh, concerns actually Malcolm Gladwell's uh, book Blank, in which he discusses um, this thing that happens to people who who have you know expertise in a in a certain field, where they're able mm-hmm. to make um, or even just you know uh, normal humans walking around, where you're able to make um, pretty accurate judgments um, in like in less than a second, essentially, um, you know, provided you're being honest with yourself. And I've often wondered if that was something that would occur. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it does. You know, whether we could identify, you know, point to it exactly is another case. But if that occurs ever in scouting, where you know. Having seen, you know, however many hundreds of baseball players, or thousands of baseball players, when one of them comes along who, who has a great deal of skill, or has a certain, may we say, je ne sais quoi, that you, as a, someone who, you know, who considers himself and, and performs in the, you know, the role of a talent evaluator, something about watching him move, or the, you know, the way he, the way he swings the bat, the way he handles himself, it just resonates with you, and you don't necessarily put a finger on it, but you see it, and, and you just kind of know that it that it exists. And I'm wondering, is is that the the feeling with Darno, or or is that uh, maybe uh, too mystical 
to describe the, the experience you had? No, you know, more or less it was just watching him go about his business for an entire ballgame. And from somebody that was a catcher and, and did my best to understand the nuances of the game, you know, you can see in even that environment in the South Atlantic League with a pitcher that's not going anywhere and, um, you know, just the way he commanded a pitching staff, the way he, the confidence about him and, and feeling comfortable going the other way and, and managing a ball game, all of the things that he did were, um, something that screamed legit. And, you know, you, you just can't help but come away impressed from guys at the low A level who are teenagers, essentially, who carry themselves like they could be in, at the time, Philadelphia the next day. And there are some guys that have that about them that you really can pick it up in the body language. And, you know, like I said, I go back to the fact that I was a catcher. I mean, I manage pitching staffs myself, and I had to read that body language on players and pitchers and, and things like that to try and pick up strengths and weaknesses. And it's it's something that I really pay quite a bit of attention to when I'm watching players. And... You know, I've also seen scouts themselves who basically watch three pitches of a guy and immediately say, this guy's legit, this guy's not legit. Um, you know, a lot of scouts are so busy making their rounds that they'll watch three batting practices in a day and never see a game and write people off based on the sound of the ball off the bat. So uh, I think everybody and, and every scout's going to be different in the way that they look at things and they're going to have their strengths that they look to and and their comfort zones where um, some guy might be inclined towards pitching mechanics somebody might be inclined towards swing mechanics um, you know it's it's just going to be different for everybody but there is that part of it that you pointed out with blank and maybe it's not a blank but there are a lot of times where you go to a baseball field and you watch a guy and he's just different than everybody else on the field. And, and that sticks out like a sore thumb. It stuck out with jerks and profar. It stuck out with Xander Bogarts and um, Nolan Arenado and some of the other players that I saw where, where these guys were in their own ways, men among boys and, and maybe not from a physical standpoint, but from a way they carried themselves in a way they um, just had, and in some innate understanding of how to play the game beyond the other guys that were on the field with them, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure, it does. And I, I want to, if, if you had to, um, well, you do have to because I'm going to make you uh, maybe give us a name. Is this like my Fangraphs initiation or something? Like, do I have to? Oh, that's much worse. No, you're definitely going to have to. You have to wear a Hello Kitty outfit. That's a, that's because I, I I already told Dave. Like he talked about the the sabermetrics conference in in the spring and i already asked him if i was gonna have to like sit in a corner by myself or if i could just hit spring training games <laughs> yeah actually i will say and uh, we've discussed this earlier in the site is that uh, uh i believe it's a it's an annual institution although um you know who know you know who, who knows what the future holds but the last uh the last two marches uh fangraphs has taken a field trip to, uh, to arizona for spring training there and that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun uh, both to see the baseball and go on the backfields there, of course, but also to hang out with other baseball nerds. And uh, 
No, I think uh, no. Your level of nerddom is perfect. Yeah, I mean, it may not necessarily be uh, numbers oriented, but it's definitely nerdy in its own way. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I'll take that as a as a very high compliment. Oh, the highest, absolutely the highest. No, but here, listen. This is yeah. I'm going to make you do this. Is uh, if you had to say, if you had to give a name, well, you know, we'll call this the, uh, the you know the annual Travis Darno, or we could call it the Mike Newman Award. Uh, you know, you 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 saw Darno or Darno a couple years ago, and and something about him appealed to you that maybe other people weren't picking up at the time, or maybe it was a sort of different intensity level for you than it was for other people. Is there is there a player like that that you've seen uh, that you saw down there this year that maybe it's just like a little bit more exciting for you than than it appears it is to other uh, prospect mavens? You know, there were a few this year, and um, you know, the first guy that sticks out is the jerks in Profar. I mean, everybody thought this guy was good, and he was ranked in the top 40 of a lot of prospect lists, and my question after watching him play was, who in the world wrote him up at the top 40 and said he might not be able to hit? Uh, this guy has explosive hands, explosive pop for a guy his size, great understanding of what he's doing on the field, a truly special, elite talent. I mean, you saw that top 25. It goes Stanton, Hayward, Harper, Profar. Um, right, there's some four. other pretty impressive names after that, too. Which, I mean, that's the yeah. point to make, yeah. Yeah, and, and Profar was, you know, to me, he's the best shortstop prospect in baseball. And, um, you know, and a lot of people say, well, Machado is. And, and I could say, well, Machado may be for – well, he may be or may not be this very instant, but to me, I'm 100% certain that Profar is going to stay at shortstop, mm-hmm. where with Machado, maybe I'm 75, 80% certain. So to me, that would force me to move Profar higher because I think once he's ready to be in Texas, I, I don't think Andrus is going to be a block for him in the same way that we talked about Aaron Sibia and D'Arno. I mean, if, if there is are Profar guys that, that level can, of Does yeah. he have that level of defensive acumen that that Andrus does oh yes he's a talented talented guy I mean this guy was a pitcher at 16 throwing low 90s and now he's brought that arm strength shortstop uh he's a really a whiz and and with no true weakness in his ball game as an 18 year old who's only had a bat in his hand for a couple years I mean it's pretty remarkable the advances that that he's made and that's one thing that watching Julio Terran over the last three years has taught me is that when you see a guy with truly an elite skill set and tool set like a guy like Profar, mm-hmm. you can't underestimate just how fast those truly special guys can improve and grow exponentially where other players you can project to be marginally better the following year. Um, you could see some guys take huge, huge leaps and Another guy on that same team that nobody I've ever heard really talks about is the Rangers had a little first third baseman, and I think the metrics crowd would just eat him up. Um, his name is Christian Villanueva, mm-hmm. and he's a 20-year-old, you know, at the at the level, and had a really nice power-speed combination year. I think he had close to 20 home runs, um, 30 steals. Uh, yeah, 17 home runs, 32 steals as a um, 
20-year-old third baseman. Mm-hmm. Played some of the year at 19. Um, and to me, he was a good enough defensive third baseman to say, if I squinted a little bit, maybe I could see the Rangers even trying him at second base to really allow his offensive skill set to play at its absolute highest level. And I thought that he was, you know, behind Profar and behind Bogarts, I could probably make a good argument that he was the third best prospect on the field. And when you're looking at a field with two Rangers first-round draft picks and Kellen Deglin and Jake Skoll, that's really saying something. Well, that's really great. Hey, listen, Mike Newell, I'm going to let you go. Uh, I'm going to let the listeners go. And I'm going to let myself go watch the end of this Red Sox game. But I, I, I do want to thank you, and I hope that this is uh, only the beginning of uh, many appearances for you on the uh, House podcast of Fangraphs. Hey, anytime. And, and, you know, my major in college was broadcasting, so uh, anything you need in terms of the audio, I'm ready and willing to chip in. Oh, well, let's have a long conversation about that uh, off, off the air. But uh, for now, let's say goodbye. You are uh, Mike Newman. I... I I'm, ass- I'm assuming still, and I am, and will continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio.